0: Let's turn to Romans. We're going to key in and have been a little bit keying in on the key verse of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Romans one sixteen to 17, really one central key verse to the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Paul wrote Romans in about 52 of the common era, as it's called, or A.D., as we more familiarly call it. And it's very interesting, because the epistles of Paul, not considering the so-called pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, the other ten were written almost in a volley, a furious volley that Paul wrote against a gospel that had been circulating among the churches, and he feared that it would overrun his true gospel a gospel of unconditional salvation a gospel that is entirely Christocentric rather than anthropocentric or centered in man and man's efforts a gospel Paul's is of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not our faithfulness or our faith for that matter our faith is not the issue Christ's faithfulness is the issue Paul's gospel stressed the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, whereas this other gospel stressed the works of man in seeking to be justified. And I think they even included faith as a work to seek God's justification. So let's turn to Romans 1.16. So let's consider this. Romans 1.16. I'll read it first. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. And he wrote Romans in anticipation of his enemies. And he said it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who has faith. This does not mean that the salvation is only to people with faith. It means that people who have faith or participate in the faithfulness of Christ understand the gospel as the power of salvation those who have faith have a gifted participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness and that's important for us to note it is not our faith but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ there is a phrase in the scripture pistis p-i-s-t-i-s Christou c-h-r-i-s-t-o-u pistis christou the faith of christ is how it's often translated but this is in a translation that we understand it is called a subjective genitive and it means the faithfulness of christ probably the hallmark verse on this is galatians 2:20 where the apostle announced again against a gospel that was another gospel that didn't have he said the right to be called a gospel. And he said in Galatians 1, 8, 9, that whether he or some messenger from heaven brought this other gospel, that they should be accursed. And so there was this other gospel that tried to sway God's people away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. Nothing intervened between Paul being called the persecutor and Paul being called the apostle of Jesus Christ, except the pure, unadulterated grace of God. Paul did not secure justification through personal faith, and he didn't write about it either. He didn't write about it. There is another gospel, and this is where we've hit a point of controversy already, for there are, there's a lot of reaction within and without on this one. And that's okay, because I tried to go for the throat early on this to show that Romans 1.18 to 32, for example, is a parody speech of a turn-or-burn message by a false teacher. And that can be demonstrated, and we will demonstrate it more and more as we started last week in one. All through the bulk of chapter 2, we have the same philosophy of this other teacher. He says things like Romans 2.6 through 10 that those who persist in righteousness or in doing good, those who persist in doing good will be rewarded with life and glory and honor. And those who persist in evil will be judged and receive anxiety, angst, pressure, distress, as if there is this waiting doomsday awaiting them. But Paul inserts in Romans 2.16 sixteen, Agreeing that there will come a day when all the thoughts and intentions and motives of men's hearts will be displayed, but he says, according to my gospel, that judgment will be through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dia Christu Jesu. Through Jesus Christ. Our judge is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. God has committed all judgment to him, says John 5.22 to 5.27, because he is the son of man. He is the son of man as the single inclusive representative of all mankind. There is no mediator between God and man, but the man, Christ Jesus. God does not have a contract with humanity, whereby he says, do this and you will live, do this and I'll do this for you. It is a not a contract, but a covenant. It's an unconditional covenant of salvation. And it's mediated through one man, the man Christ Jesus. God will judge all humankind, but he'll do so through Jesus Christ, the one who received and became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, the crucified and risen Savior, is the judge so we will be judged through jesus christ who stands in for all humankind and this will realize the saying of paul in first corinthians 15 22 for as in adam all die so in christ all will be made alive and he says in romans 3 23 for all sinned and keep coming short of the glory of god being justified. And we've shown you that word justified is not a legal imputation of righteousness, but it's a gracious deliverance enacted by God, a gracious deliverance enacted by God for by grace. You have been saved through faithfulness. The faithfulness is not of yourselves. It's the faithfulness of Christ. And this is, again, after 38 years of teaching the word in Pittsburgh and a few more years after that, before that, in Vermont and elsewhere, the word that I'm teaching finally caught up with what God did to me and for me in January of 1972 in the dead of winter at the University of Vermont. I had this tremendous sense of deliverance, followed by the gift of faith. Followed by the gift of faith. I could not articulate that testimony in previous affiliations. Because previous affiliations, and I was conformed into them. Announced that it is through faith that you receive life. Your faith. And I always was puzzled because I said, you didn't work that way in me. And then I was delighted to realize you didn't work that way in Paul either. Paul was called an apostle by Jesus Christ. And nothing intervened between Paul, the murderous persecutor, or Saul of Tarsus, the murderous persecutor, and Paul, the apostle, the master builder of God's church. Nothing intervened but the pure grace of God, the unconditional, saving grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through the faithfulness of another. Our faith is a gifted participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Again in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, said the apostle. I was crucified with Christ. Paul understands that he has a retrospective participation with Christ. He shares the history of Jesus Christ. For when Christ was crucified, Paul recognized, I was crucified. In Colossians 2.12, which Paul also wrote, incidentally, he wrote Colossians before he wrote Romans. He wrote Ephesians before he wrote Romans. He wrote a previous letter to the Philippians, which he reproduced in his letter that we have Philippians 3 2 to 4 3 comes from a previous letter to the Philippians that we don't have but Paul says I don't think it's burdensome for me to repeat what I've written before so he puts in 3 2 to 4 3 read that sometime if you want to have a shocking a shock to the system of what righteousness is and so There are people that say Paul couldn't have written Ephesians because he's not dealing with justification by faith like he did in Romans. The reason he's not dealing with it is because his gospel has to do with God's intention to summarize everything in Christ, which he spoke very clearly in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. He wasn't dealing with the controversy that came up in Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Philippi. And so he was able to just display his gospel in all of its glory, starting in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, and then 2, 8 through 10. And so the dating process of the epistles has now been reached with absolute dates. We know absolutely by dating, and I can show you later or sometime during the midweek, that Paul was let down by a basket through a window in the wall at Damascus to escape from the guards of Aretas in exactly the year 36 AD. It was two years after his commission and call on the road to Damascus, 34 AD. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians first, and he wrote it in response to an exigence or an, uh, an emerging situation. Because in the late, right before he wrote that, the Caesar, whose name was Gaius, Caesar, intended to put an image of himself in the temple at Jerusalem, which everyone began to interpret as the Antichrist coming, the man of sin coming, and the abomination of desolation. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 40, we know he wrote it in 40 AD, that was his first writings, to say, I don't want you all to be shaken up by this, because that doesn't mean the end, this doesn't mean the end. And so Thessalonians was written against something that happened in Rome that a Caesar intended to place his image in the temple at Jerusalem, which would have been disastrous. That thing never happened. God providentially intervened, and it didn't happen. The abomination of desolation, as we've understood it, and as we've taught it from Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, occurred in 70 A.D., however. So Paul's epistles, then we don't have anything written from 40 to 50. But then from 50 to 52, we have eight epistles written in almost like a flurry, in almost like a salvo, because Paul was responding to a wave of teachers that had come to Corinth, they had come to Galatia, they were about to come to Philippi, and Paul was worried that this wave, this tsunami would reach Rome, so he wrote Romans anticipating or even understanding that many of these people had been taught by a teacher who had a different gospel from Paul. That's why Romans has to be untangled from what it looks like a contradiction. There is in Romans 1 through 4, Paul letting this gospel, this other teacher speak, including Romans 4 where Abraham is looked to rather than Jesus being looked to. In Hebrews 11, we have all the heroes of the faith as they're called. And they were just precocious participants in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He lists all these heroes of faith, as we call them. And not one place does it ever say that by faith they were imputed the righteousness of God. It simply says they by faith functioned in such a way. They were precocious. In other words, before Jesus Christ came, participants in his faithfulness after he finishes that long hall of fame, he says, looking unto Jesus, turn away from all of these and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who endured the cross, thinking very little of the shame attached to it, and is now exalted at God's right hand. Then he goes on to say, you have not yet striven, unto blood in striving against sin, etc. Through tw- Hebrews, on and on it goes. So in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And this goes back to Isaiah 28.16. Behold, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a foundation stone, and he who has faith will not be ashamed. Paul's not ashamed of this gospel. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This gospel doesn't make you ashamed to speak to somebody the good news and then qualify it with a threat of hell. The threat of eternal hell is not found in the scriptures anywhere. It is found in a misinterpretation of the scriptures in several places, as we've begun to demonstrate. And I think we've demonstrated it already thoroughly enough in, Re- in Revelation. But the greatest light we're going to get on Revelation is the backlighting from Romans because all of Paul's epistles written in a flurry as it were in 50 to 52 have to be interpreted apocalyptically. It's one big apocalypse and by apocalypse I mean it's one big presentation of God's saving act of the human race in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's gospel. We've learned from Psalm 98, which is in the Septuagint translation. The Greek translation of Psalm 98 is found in, they have it in Psalm 97. We've shown you what righteousness means. That's another key word in Romans. What righteousness means. Righteousness means the saving act of a king toward his people. It's because, as even in America, the number one thing that the president is supposedly to be dedicated to is the preservation and protection of the people. And that's what a king does. And so to act righteously for a king is to act in a saving way toward his people, in a preserving way toward his people, in a delivering way through his people. So Psalm 97 in the Septuagint, which is Psalm 98 in your translation celebrates in 98.6 the act of a king in rescuing his people. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is, according to the flesh, born of the seed of David, the royal line of Israel. And by being raised from the dead, God designated him as king of kings. God designated him to have been all along his divine son by his resurrection. This other gospel that Paul combats, marginalizes, or treats as insignificant the cross of Christ. It's set aside over here. It's over here. Thank God Jesus died for our sins, but now you've got to live for him in the energy of the flesh. That's a marginalization of the cross. That's a, you know what that is? A gospel preached by the enemies of the cross of Christ. The enemies of the cross of Christ will acknowledge it. Paul called them that in Philippians 3.18. He said, I've told you before in a previous letter to the Philippians. And now I'm telling you even with tears. That there are many who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And I'll tell you with tears now that the so-called gospel that's being proclaimed, and I'm not saying, I'm not indicting by this, but I'll guarantee that across America today, there's a gospel that marginalizes the cross of Christ. That talks about some, something about the human spirit overcoming a disaster or a disease, but nothing about Jesus Christ who overcame sin and death. The enemies of the cross of Christ are its enemies not only in its saving universality, but in its ethical effect. The cross of Christ actually has an ethical effect because, as Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of the Son of God, the God why are you alive with eternal life Paul well because I believed and received an imputation of legal righteousness no because Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me and the life that I now live I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God I don't frustrate the grace of God because if deliverance from God comes in the beginning by works or In other words, if I get in by works or stay in by works, Christ died for nothing. There is a gospel that announces while it marginalizes and sets over on the left or the right the cross or puts it way down on the priority list. There is a gospel that announces that Christ died for nothing the gospel according to Paul is all about God's son. It's all about his death. Paul said, coming from Athens to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, which means not only crucified, but now raised. Not only raised, but now exalted. It's not our faith. It's Christ's faithfulness the psalmist understood this in Psalm 100 we are his people and the sheep of his pasture it's he that has made us and not we ourselves the enemies of the cross of Christ had a superficial impressiveness and they were in in 2nd Corinthians there was another group called the super Apostles And they said, well, Paul doesn't have the same impressive dynamic as we do. The same impressive rhetorical flourish. The same entertainment value that we have. He is in his presence is weak. Oh, his letters are weighty. Oh, his letters are powerful. But his presence is weak. These were men whose impressiveness was only superficial. Let them talk long enough and they'll marginalize the cross. It won't be about God's Son. It'll be something about man. It'll be anthropocentric. It'll be an earned or deserved salvation somehow. Or it'll be a legalistic salvation. Or it will be the imputation of righteousness to reward an act of faith. These are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose God is their belly, Paul said, whose end is destruction. And that doesn't mean eternal destruction. But then he says, but we are citizens from heaven and we await from there a deliverer, even Jesus Christ the Lord, who shall come and change these bodies of humiliation into a body of glory like his own. He's able to do this, you see, in the same power by which he, in Philippians 3.21, subordinates all things to himself, everything to himself. Paul doesn't have a turn or burn message. Another teacher that we see gradually emerge from the shadows, I was watching with... On mute, because I read, and then I watch TV on Mute in that movie Noah, which kind of distorted the gospel a little bit. It was on, but this guy apparently hitched a ride on the ark in this version, the Hollywood version, which was a greeny version, of course, and it was the the meat eaters were the were the bad guys in this, but this guy sneaked onto the ark, and his noah 's one of noah 's sons was in that corner of the ark where this guy had sneaked in it, and then you see the man talking in the darkness. And then all of a sudden his face emerges. That's exactly what happens in Romans. You hear a man speaking in the darkness. He preaches a turn or burn message in Romans 118. He says, contrary to what Paul says in 117. Therein, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, which means the saving act of a king toward his people, all people, is revealed apocalypto in the gospel. This guy says, no, the wrath of God is being revealed against the heathen, the pagans. The same people Paul called saints. And he didn't even have a canonization process. He just called them saints. You're called saints. He said, you're called Hagion saints, just like I was called apostle. Nothing intervened from you being called pagans or heathen or ethne or the nations and you being called saints except for the pure, unconditional, saving grace of God in Christ due to Christ's own faithfulness. You say, then eventually, if that's unconditional, it eventually will be universal. Yes, but we all have free will, do we not? Free will means that you still can have the will to resist this gospel, as many who call themselves Christians are doing today, more so than those who are not called Christians. And so there's a timing thing here involved. We're not saved by our will, we're saved by God's will, which Jesus Christ made the decision for us on the way to the cross. Not my will, he said, representing all humankind. Because our will would have resisted God's will. So Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Well, what's God's will? To summarize everything in Christ. Well, how's he going to do it? Through the crucifixion of his son and the burial and the resurrection and the exaltation of his son. Because in the death of his son, in the crucifixion of his son, is the crucifixion of all creation and all humankind. In the burial of his son is the doing away with the whole irredeemable Adamic ontology. There is something irredeemable, and it's what we are in Adam. We put off the old man because he's irredeemable. But we in our true reality are not only redeemable, but already redeemed. This is the saving act of God in Christ. The righteousness of God is being revealed contrary to the turn or burn message, which Paul responds to after this guy's done. You hear him speaking in the dark. We don't see his face emerge until later on. We'll see it. It starts to emerge a little bit in Romans 2.1 when Paul says, But then you, O oh man, preacher of the turn or burn gospel, are without excuse because inasmuch as you condemn others and judge others, you yourself are condemned. Because you do the same things. Then he goes on to say, you say, and all the way through Romans two thirteen, it's this other guy speaking. He's in the speaking in the dark in the shadows. And you talk about God judging men and all the thoughts and intents of men's hearts. But he said, but according to my gospel, the little in Romans two sixteen, it's through Jesus Christ. He said to the heathen, the philosophers on Mount, the Mars Mountain in Athens, God has appointed a day whereby he will judge the world of mankind by a man whom he has raised from the dead by this Jesus and God bore witness to this fact by raising him from the dead another thing the false gospel does is it marginalizes the resurrection the resurrection is just as much a saving act of God as the death of his son that in in other words if we speak of the cross we have to speak of an entire event Christ's death Christ's burial his resurrection and his ascension All of these belong to you. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said. You died and your life is hid with Christ, he said, to the saints in Colossae. And when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you will appear with him in glory. There's eschatological assurance there. The false gospel has no eschatological assurance. It's got a plan of human desert whereby you get in, And a plan of human deserving whereby you stay in. It's a gospel of the enemies of the cross of Christ. There is a great distinctive judgment coming now today to the church. It's going to show much to the shock and amazement of many Christians that their message has all along been agreeing with the message of a false teacher. They have been agreeing while they preach the cross. It's out here, though. Jesus died for your sins, but you've got to behave to get in and stay behaving to stay in. You've got to believe to get in and get the imputed righteousness of God, and then you've got to be faithful to stay in or damnation's waiting around for you around every single corner because, you see, God is a God of retribution and a retributive justice. It's not what Paul's gospel teaches. Paul's gospel says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet his hostile to the very act of God giving his son, Christ died. And when Christ died, guess what he did? He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised from the dead for our justification, which again that justification means our gracious deliverance, therefore romans five one does not say, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, that is, being justified by our faith, we have peace with God. no, being delivered freely as an act of unconditional grace by faithfulness which goes back to the key verse which we're going to read soon i'm going to get there romans 117 the righteousness of god is revealed therein from faithfulness to faithfulness you can read that two ways from god's faithfulness which is emphasized in the covenant to Christ's faithfulness who is the mediator of that unconditional covenant Or it can be interpreted as from faithfulness, Christ's own faithfulness, to the faithfulness of his people, which is a gifted participation in his faithfulness. It's what Galatians 5, 6 calls a faithfulness that works by love. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us. Therefore, this faithfulness emerges as love. But it's love only as it's willed and performed in us by God the Holy Spirit. So therefore the cross has saving and it also has ethical value. Some will say the cross has saving value but they won't say that it has ethical value. Christian ethics to them is a human behavior slightly aided by God or not aided by God. This false teacher believed that males who were converted from the pagans or the nations had to be physically circumcised. He also said that that physical circumcision had some kind of a spiritual effect that gave you a little more ability to comprehensively obey the Torah of Moses' law. Paul came along and he said, If you're circumcised, Christ will not even profit you anything in Galatians 5.2. And he says, No flesh, quoting from the Septuagint of Psalm 142 2, which is 143.2 in the English, no flesh shall be justified in his sight by works. No flesh shall be justified in his sight by the works of the law and so Paul roots Christian ethics in the cross of Christ reckon yourselves to be dead to sin now sin is a power it's a power over life reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin but alive to God he says in Romans 6 Contrary to the accusation made against Paul, that he's saying, Go out and do evil that good may come, or his gospel is a you've heard this before, a license to sin. That's an old excuse, used by spiritual infants or by enemies of the cross of Christ against the gospel of God. Paul said in Galatians six or in Romans six one, Shall we go on sinning, therefore? May it never be. And then he explains an ethic, a post-salvation, if, it, if you will, ethic that is also rooted in the cross. Reckon yourselves dead unto sin. Why? Because you have been crucified with Christ and alive to God. Why? Because you have been raised together with Christ in Colossians 3.1. That's the basis of Christian ethics. Along with the power of the Holy Spirit to walk by means of the spirit and not by means of the flesh Means to walk in total dependence or to order your lives in total dependence on God who's willing and working in you Not on your own human energy or human ability or human capacity Now that's because our faith is a gift of participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Look at Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. One of the reasons I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because I don't have to say when they ask the question, well, yes, the mass of human beings are going to spend eternity in a Christless hell of torment like Augustine taught us and taught the Western church. Augustine believed that the majority of human beings were going to spend eternity in a kind of hell in which there is never a remission of their suffering, and that somehow this glorifies God. It would glorify God if he was a God of retribution and justice, but he's a God of unlimited benevolence, according to Paul's gospel. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because, to me, this gospel has nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't present a God of retributive justice, but of unlimited benevolence and beneficence. Not maleficence, but beneficence. God isn't malevolent toward mankind. He created mankind and said, it's very good. It's a very good creation. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it isn't anthropocentric. God doesn't give you a quiz like the false teacher says. And shows you by creation you better determine from creation that I'm the creator if you don't you're off on the wrong foot that's what the preacher said the teacher said not Paul that's what the guy said in the darkness whose face he hitched a ride on Paul's Ark but he don't belong there man has this supposed rational capacity I agree with one thing from Calvin and it's his doctrine of total depravity. I do not believe, and it wasn't even Calvin who taught, limited atonement. Christ died for some people. That's, that's blasphemous, that's monstrous, it's even devilish. That's a devilish doctrine. And it's argued whether Calvin was even even the author of it. Calvin has writings where he seems to agree with an unconditional grace for salvation. But I agree with one thing he writes. Total depravity of man. Man's radical incapacity. As Paul quoted from the scriptures and not the wisdom of Solomon, which this false teacher quotes from, which is not a canonical book. Paul says there's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. And what he's building up toward is, that includes you, teacher. That includes you, turner Burn preacher. And he concludes by saying, there is now a righteousness from God, a saving act of God in Christ, available without law, but which the law itself testifies to, and all the prophets testifies to, that is upon all those of the faithfulness of Christ which is eventually all humankind because he goes on to explain all sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified or delivered graciously by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By which God showed his faithfulness in his blood. The blood of Christ is a metonymy, just like the faithfulness of Christ, the patience of Christ, the the obedience of Christ, a metonymy or a one word thing that, grasps the whole faithfulness of Christ unto death and then his exalted resurrection and session and enthronement at the right hand of the Father. And so, God is just and he's the deliverer of all those who benefit from the faithfulness of Jesus, says Romans 3.26. That's, who's that? John says we've all benefited From his fullness. With grace after grace. The key word in Romans is unconditional. The key word in Revelation. In our study of it is universal. The key connection is. If it's unconditional. It ultimately has to be universal. That's the God. I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Because I don't have to stop. And say. But if you don't believe. And you die in that state. You will go to hell with no hope of recovery and you'll be with millions and millions of countless others screaming for deliverance. But the God of justice is somehow glorified way up there beyond it all. And Augustine and others even said, you will rejoice in their suffering because somehow that glorifies the justice of God. I've got a lot of words to describe that. One of them is an English translation. Translation of the Greek word skubala some of you know that Paul counted all of his performance as an obedient lawful Jew as skubala the polite word excrement when compared with the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord I'm not ashamed of this gospel. There's nothing to be ashamed about. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who has faith. Before God gifted me with faith, I didn't see the gospel as the power of salvation. But after he gave me faith, which is the ability to recognize his unconditional and unrestricted love, and that's what faith is. It's the gifted ability to recognize God's total love. Once I recognized God's total love, I looked back at the gospel and said, that's the power of salvation. It's that power to me because I am now of faith. It wasn't that to me before I had faith, but now I do. And Paul says, now I do. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which he said in two is all about his God's son, whom God raised from the dead. It is the power of God to to everyone to salvation to everyone who has faith. The Jew first, and also the Greek. He's there. He's quoting this other teacher. He's not. Paul doesn't ever demean or attack the Jews as a people. A false interpretation of Romans, which was adopted by many strange groups in history, including the Nazi Party in Germany, assumed that Paul was attacking. The Jews or the Jew. And so they had a rationale that if God's rejected his, those people, then we can reject them. If God's going to burn them, we'll burn them. Paul never did that. That's a false interpretation. Ultimately, that becomes the interpretation of the Aryan Brotherhood. It's a racist interpretation. Paul never attacked the Jew. He just attacked a Jew who was a Christian Jew who was teaching another gospel other than the one that was given to Paul by an apocalypse, a revelation of God's act in Christ. As Paul said, I didn't receive the gospel that I preach from men, nor was I taught it as if I had to matriculate in a school. I received it by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a shocking, stunning, overwhelming Unconditional disclosure of God's saving act in Christ. What's the righteousness of God? If not the right thing that a king does for his people, which is to save, preserve, deliver them. Without, listen carefully, without a view to their desert or deserving. As Clint Eastwood said in the person of William Money at the end of Unforgiven, Deserves got nothing to do with it. And when you come to the gospel. Deserves got nothing to do with it. Except one thing. The faithful Messiah. Deserves. Honor and glory. And power and salvation. He became obedient. To the extent of death. By crucifixion. Therefore God has highly exalted him. The one who deserved is him. Who did God save if not his son from death? And because God saved his son from the mouth of the lion, God saved all of humankind whom he represented from the mouth of the lion or the absolute death that the Turner Burn preacher likes to call hell. Again, I said there's opposition from within, from within Tetelestai Church, and opposition from without, from outside our ranks, but still in Christ. But does that deter our path? No. It just says, give me, I was going to say a minute, but I'll say six months. Give me six months to explain myself. Well, I've heard seven of his messages And on the basis of those seven messages that I received on a current MP3, I reject his gospel. Really? That's like saying, I reject what Campbell said in his 929-page book called The Deliverance of God in which there are tens of thousands of scriptural lower-blade data given. But I Oh, but have you read it? Oh, no, I haven't read it. But I did see a video. I saw a video about him. I saw a blog... Anybody can do a blog. You live in the blogosphere. I live in the pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. To everyone has faith, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's what this false teacher said. But Paul said in verse 17, for in it the righteousness, dikaiosune, and we have seen that this is an allusion to Psalm 98, or if that's your alarm, just take your pill and get it over with, but it's dikaiosune is defined. Paul is alluding to Psalm 97 or Psalm 98. The same language is used in the Greek version of Psalm 97, which says that the the king in verse 6, acts in righteousness, and his righteousness is the salvation that he enacts. It's only the right thing. You say, has this president succeeded? I would say, I don't say a president succeeds based on his performance even, but has he succeeded in number one priority, protecting and preserving the freedom of the people? God the king has succeeded. His righteousness is his act of unconditional salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, toward his people. And uh, here's a newsflash. All people are God's people. And the universe, in fact, the universes, the invisible and the visible universe, are his domain. So if he's the king of that whole domain, he's righteous, In enacting salvation over his domain. And his domain includes angels. It includes thrones and dominions and invisible powers. It includes all things. And so Paul must not have been kidding. And he really wrote Colossians one twenty Before he wrote Romans. In which he said. God reconciles everything to himself. By the blood of Christ's cross. That's the gospel. What's there to be ashamed of? I like what Jesus said when the critics of John the Baptizer were everywhere. He said, what did you people go out to see when you went out to hear John preach? Someone with delicate, expensive clothing? Well, he said, if you did, I'll tell you this, eunuchs wear those. The eunuchs in queens and kings' palaces wear those. But if you went out to hear a man, and a man, the greatest man ever born of woman, then you heard John. John didn't have the superficial impressiveness of the super apostles or the enemies of the cross, he was all about the cross. What did you go out to see when you went to see Paul? Did you want to see some athletic Greek with an A-plus and a Ph.D. in rhetoric? Or did you see an apostle that was beaten more times than we can count, beaten with rods by the Romans, whiplashed with 39 lashes by the Jews, stoned to death outside of Lystra? What kind of an impression did he make? Not a superficial one. But if you listen to his words, you heard the gospel about God's son. You heard the most spectacular, glorious, wonderful, awesome, inspiring declaration of God's saving act in Christ. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. If God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in the cross, not imputing the world's sins to them, then where does that put the world if not reconciled? Yeah, but they don't know it yet. That's why God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. As Scott Jones made clear in his message, it's not be reconciled. It's don't resist the reconciliation. You can't will your reconciliation. You can't will salvation. That decision has already been made for you when Christ went to the cross. When he said finished, your salvation was done. But you can resist the message of this reconciliation. And the biggest resistors I see are Christians who assume that what they believe is the word of God when they believe another gospel that Paul is refuting. See, it's a dilemma. Just when I hit retirement age, 65, God gives me the biggest challenge of my life. Wow. (laughs) Thank you, Father. I will drink this cup even if it takes 15, 20, 25 years. If I've got my mother's genes, I might be here at 92. But this is the biggest challenge I've seen, but it's the most glorious insight I've seen. So let's look at it in closing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who has faith. What Paul is saying is, I'm one of those now who has faith. And so to me, that gospel is, there's nothing to be ashamed about with it. You wonder why the millennials, as they call them, or Generation X, or why there's been such an exit from the church. I don't blame them. I think it's a rational exit. Because they know somehow that hell is in there and it's a big part of it. In fact, when you don't see hell, these, the hell preachers will say that you're a heretic because you have ru- ruined the number one tenet of our faith. Which is a, an eternal hell rooted in a retributive God. Who didn't listen to his son on the cross when the son said, Father, forgive them. And who doesn't follow his own advice when he says, love your enemies. For in it, the righteousness of God is being unveiled apocalyptically. Apocalypto. In it. By it. What? This gospel. The righteousness of God. And what is again? That's from Psalm 98. The saving act of God, the king in Christ, his human mediator and representative, the king of kings. This is what's being unveiled. But the preacher, the teacher, says, no, the wrath of God is being revealed. And he lists all the sins. Now, by saying that's not Paul preaching this, I'm not saying Paul doesn't have an ethical view. He does, but it's rooted in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection and in the gift of the Holy Spirit and in a gifted participation that's transformative. From faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness, Two, faithfulness. That's our participation in faithfulness. Just as it is written. And here's the key prophetic verse. Paul says this gospel is borne witness to by the prophets. And the main verse, the main prophetic text of all of Romans is Habakkuk 2.4, which Paul interprets Christologically, Christocentrically. There are many enemies of the cross of Christ who say Christocentric in every other sentence. There are many enemies of the grace of God who call their church the grace church or I'm a grace man while they deny the grace and marginalize the cross and frustrate the grace of God. I tell you with tears, Paul said, that many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. What I'm trying to do by preaching this is limit their club, steal their members. First thing I got when I taught on the radio and then taught is this local ministry that represents a national ministry said, he's a sheep stealer. And I actually talked to this rep and I said, what do you mean I'm a sheep stealer? And he says, you're double feeding. I said, what do you mean double? I'm double feeding. Am I a sheep stealer or am I just overfeeding the sheep? I mean, I know they force-fed turkeys. They force-feed turkeys. And then they force us to eat the turkeys <laughs> on Thanksgiving Day. But I never heard a double... Well, you're double feeding because you're on the radio teaching and you're teaching in a pulpit. You're double feeding. And back then we were told by our affiliational superiors that you have to win the endorsement of this ministry, this national ministry, with their call-in thing. And so I said, and this was kind of the beginning of the end for me, I don't need your endorsement to them because this message has the endorsement of God, the Holy Spirit. And this message is preached with conviction and in the power of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, I don't need your endorsement I don't need your endorsement and there's something to be said with keeping the unity of the faith among all believers but not being attached to a hierarchical affiliative movement in which if you want to keep your salary you better toe the line sure sure And they even said to me, you better get in the flow. There's already a flow here in Pittsburgh. And my answer to that was, why should I get in the flow if the flow is sewage? I'm not Ralph Cramden's friend, Norton. I don't make my living in the sewers, which is an honorable thing. And I'm not saying that all preachers are in the flow of sewage. I'm saying there's a lot of good preachers in the Pittsburgh area, many of them. And I have unity with any that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. I have no bones to pick, no axes to grind. I don't have a war to fight against the Catholics or a war to fight against the Pentecostals or a war to fight against the fundamentalists. I have a gospel to preach that's inclusive But wherein people agree with this turn or burn stuff, the flow that they're in is scubula. Well, the scubula is about to hit the fan. In it, the gospel... The righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ is being unveiled from Christ's faithfulness to a participation in that faithfulness just as as it is written, the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ, as we'll teach again and again, will live by his fidelity. This is a picture of Jesus Christ living in resurrection as a response to his faithfulness his obedience to the death of the cross. By one man's disobedience, we all became sinners. By one man's obedience to the death of the cross, we all received the justification of life. That's not a legal imputation. It's called life. It's called deliverance. So just a couple points in closing. Our faith is a gifted participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness by which he's obedient to the death of the cross. It is by this participation that a true Christocentric ethic is realized. And the faith of the righteous ones or the presbyteroi in Hebrews 11 was a precocious participation which we are not to look to ultimately and therefore we're not to look to Abraham ultimately as the false teacher did in Romans 4. We are to look ultimately to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith because he perfected faithfulness by his obedience to the death of the cross and he was delivered up to death on the cross for our sins, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world and resurrected for our justification or our gracious deliverance. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness Christ's faithfulness to death, followed by resurrection, we have peace with God. And you know what that starts? What I call Romans 5, 1 to 8, 39, I call it the gospel unchained. The unchained gospel. That's where we're going to graduate a little bit from teaching into preaching. Proclamation. And I sometimes don't relish... Preaching. Because preaching is more prophetic. And when you speak like a prophet, you end up like a prophet. Not many of them ended well. At least on this side. On the other side, that's a different matter. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that through these first introductory salvos in your gospel, this being the sixth, of Better Call Paul... We pray that your Holy Spirit will make clear to us exactly what Paul is proclaiming because it is the gospel about your son. It's all about your son. It's not partly about him. Father, grant us the grace to live a life in the light of a cross that's not marginalized, but at the very center. It occupies the heart and the heartland of our Christian life and help us to see the saving impact of a resurrection and to see that we are already raised together with him. And so I thank you, Father, for this gospel that does not take away our eschatological assurance, not only for ourselves but for all of creation, but establishes it. And that does not remove from us ethical efficacy for a life that glorifies you, but rather grants it in the person of the Spirit who pours out in our hearts that which you require from us, the love of God. We present ourselves, I do, I present my body as a living sacrifice to you for the purpose of being transformed by this gospel, liberated by this gospel, unchained. And I close today by saying and repeating what Paul said, remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, according to my gospel. And though I am imprisoned, Paul said, the word of God is not chained. Reveal to us, Father, this unchained gospel, that we might be effective ambassadors of it in a world that desperately requires a message of true hope. For we ask it in Christ's name.